0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Casper Melville, who is a lecturer in global creative and cultural industries at SOAS in London, about his new book, It's a London Thing, How Rare Groove, Acid House, and Jungle Remapped the City. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. Um, th- this is both a great kind of academic book, but also, um, and to give away you know, the time we're recording, in this really kind of strange time for London, it's you know a sort of wonderfully um, evocative book of, of how uh, cities can be you know full of life, full of culture, and, and very much you know not locked down uh, and full of, full of silence. So so it's been a pleasure to read it actually over the last uh, kind of week or so, um, and it you know really sort of took me back to uh, to a very different use of the city. And and to kick off with, uh, I guess. The book is as much kind of, you know, about your experiences uh, in the city as it is this analysis of race, space and, and place. And, and it'd be good to know a bit about um, your kind of motivations to write the book and, and where the sort of um, the ideas to write it came from.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, it, this is a book I have wanted to write for 20 20- years perhaps even 30 years. Um, my, my original job before I was an academic was I was a music journalist and I got into music journalism because of my fascination with my love for uh, a particular, particular kinds of music that I was exposed to growing up in London in a multicultural city. Um, music of the African diaspora primarily, uh, starting with reggae and, uh, and then moving on to uh, various uh, genres of dance music as they emerged in the in the late seventies and throughout the eighties and nineties. So I had a, an abiding fascination with music, but I'm not, a am uh, not a musician. Uh, I, of course I wanted to be a DJ, like a lot of my, my, um, contemporaries, but I wasn't a DJ. So writing about music seemed to give me the best opportunity to be near it, to talk to the people I, who I was interested in and to kind of try and work through what the nature of the fascination I had with it and why I felt that this music broadly dance music was so important and I felt often underrated in many ways in in terms of uh, you know aesthetically treated as a bit of fluff rather than something that was substantial uh, culturally significant so I worked as a music journalist for you know decades didn't make a great deal of money you know I waited tables and worked on bar and did other things as well Um, and then in the 90s I went back to university I went to, to Goldsmiths and did an MA and then a PhD with uh, on this subject with the explicit purpose of, of of you know working on this kind of social history uh, of uh of a variety of genres over three three decades or four decades in london so it's really it is personal it is you know i'm trying not to make it you know what do they call it uh disparagingly we research rather than research you know i'm not just trying to tell the story of my life although my life is very much wrapped up with my experience of this music and my sort of interest in the kind of cultural spaces, which music makes and also where multiculture, uh, sort of coheres in the city because I have a, an abiding interest in the racial composition of the, of the city of the Western city, because that's been my experience growing up. And also of course, uh, racism, which has structured the social relations in, in London and the London that I grew up in and, um, music has played a part in trying to untangle that. And I wanted to sort of foreground that, that issue as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think actually one of the things that really separates the book uh, from, uh, you know, important but, but different um, genres of, you know, memoir or autobiography is precisely that theoretical framework, actually, and that kind of theoretical lens. Um, and it comes to the fore, actually, you know, strangely sort of, later on in the text actually particularly your um kind of critical engagement with um with with rave in the in the middle of the book but but before that we probably need to do a bit of like ground clearing really about um the perspective you've you've brought to the study of these um three scenes and, and three genres and this as you've already kind of alluded to foreground space um in this case you know spaces in in the city in london um but also kind of race as as the key um way of understanding um both how you know these genres and scenes work but also how um spaces work in london and it'd be good to know a bit uh i guess about why race and space are are the kind of like key sort of perspectives for understanding music in your analysis
1: yeah thanks for asking that i mean Thinking through, um, I suppose we should start with just saying what what I'm actually discussing. So I've looked at three three genres of music in London. I mean, they're strange genres, but they were kind of, you might call them genres or scenes or movements. The first is Rare Groove, something that happened in London in the mid-1980s, which was this kind of turn back to music of the past, mainly American black dance music. Uh, Then Acid House. Uh, which came at the end of the 1980s, and then Jungle, which emerges in the mid-1990s. And I I could have written about other music. This isn't the only music that was uh, significant. But to me, I chose these scenes because I was particularly interested in the way in which they uh, instantiated a kind of a moment of multicultural in musical production. This music is black music. It is derived from the Afro- Afro-Diasporic musical traditions, which have been running, you know, all the way back through uh, the origins of jazz and even before jazz into uh, gospel and uh, spirituals and things like that. But it is music that when it touches down in different places, coheres in different ways. And one of the things about these scenes was this was where people were learning how to be multicultural. I mean, London changed dramatically in the latter half of the 20th century because of primarily because of Caribbean migration and the racial composition of the city changed and the music which was being made in the city registered those changes. And one of the ways it registered, it was in new forms of collaboration, which were enabled in particular kinds of space. So I was very interested in, I mean, the, I guess at the core of the book is my fascination with the so-called warehouse parties, which were the these kind of informal club spaces which emerged in the 1980s in the context of deindustrialization. There was a lot of empty spaces, warehouses, old theatres, Uh, cinemas factories which were no longer in use and were put to use by you know entrepreneurial young londoners who were building their own forms of culture around certain kinds of music and new musical hybrids were emerging out of this um this kind of environment in a new kind of space and i couldn't help but feel that it was important to place what was happening in the context of what i call the racialization of space the way that London space was differentially granted to people depending on really whether they were white or black. Um you've got the emergence of, you know, black areas of the city. I grew up very close to Brixton and Brixton obviously was a, a, a center of settlement of largely Jamaican community which became in many ways a certain kind of black space but which was a space that was policed differently where people's access to, you know, services and leisure spaces was s- severely attenuated. And consequently, the, Afro, the, the, the Afro-diasporic community in London, the West Indian community, created their own kind of cultural space. And that cultural space subsequently became available to people like me. You know, white middle class people growing up in London also were given access to this space and this immensely rich musical tradition, out of which we constructed our own culture uh, against The logic which suggested that we should be staying in our own places that we should be keeping apart that people are more comfortable with their own kind you know this kind of uh, narrative that you get from people like david goodhart and others who are trying to push a certain kind of version of sort of nostalgic british national identity so I, i i just i mean it took me a while to come across the idea of space but when i was doing my phd i discovered you know Uh, sort of radical geography I discovered uh, Henri Lefebvre and Doreen Massey and ideas about and and David Theo Goldberg ideas which insisted that social differentiation and social identity like gender and race and sexuality was partly produced spatially it was in who was given access to which spaces how spaces were coded in particular ways uh, which really mattered to me so when I was interviewing for example a lot of the black DJs and dancers it was very clear that they had an experience that was very different from my own in London, which is that they suffered um, being kept out of certain kind, <coughs> excuse me, of certain kind of places. Whether it was the activities of sus on the streets of London that was stopping young black youth from, you know, going to the West End, um, or whether it was door quotas or knockbacks at clubs where London clubs would operate a system where only a certain amount of black people would be allowed in. And it was something that was relatively hidden from me when I was growing up, as it's hidden from most white people, because you don't experience it directly. And oftentimes, uh, you know, my black friends wouldn't discuss it with me because it wasn't an experience that they particularly wanted to, you know, sort of focus on or uh, spend time worrying about because that would have possibly, um, uh, you know, created a sense of powerlessness. When in fact, what, what happened and when you talk to these DJs, what you find is that they said, yeah, we knew we, were, we weren't welcome in many places in pubs, youth clubs, at football, at you know, West End clubs. So we built our own. We made our own systems. And the, obviously, the first most important um, example of that is reggae sound systems. And the lesson of reggae sound systems was then taken and adapted into a whole series of new club genres in the 1980s and 90s, which is what I focus on.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you um you brought us back to the um to the music actually because that that was I think I think one of the really uh kind of strong elements of the book that you know it's not just a sort of cultural geography uh of London. It's not just you know a sociology of space, but it's you know profoundly kind of engaged with with the music um and these three uh musical scenes. And as a final bit of, of sort of scene setting it, it, it's worth maybe spending a little bit of time on the precursors to, uh, to your three, uh, genres, you know, rare groove, rave and, and, and jungle. And, you know, we could either pick reggae, you know, we could talk about soul as well, you, you know, whatever you think might be uh, kind of interesting, but, you know, the stories of these genres are precisely those stories of spatial segregation Um, alternative spaces um, and the creation of you know very different uh, sort of economies to the ones that uh, maybe we're used to about you know stories of 60s and and 70s music in Britain.
1: Yeah well I try and I, I do say in the book you know you can't understand London musical genres whether it's grime or you know dubstep or UK garage unless you understand the huge influence of these two musical forms of the late 60s really which are reggae starting with ska and then reggae and and soul music and the way in which these two were brought into the city and circulated within the city but had a kind of distinct character as well really fascinated me because you know having grown up in a school where uh, there was a kind of you know in the 70s in in london racial tension was extremely high my school was no exception you know we had a kind of mini race riot in my school there were they were overtly racist skinheads, uh, Chelsea fans, a lot of them where I went to school in Pimbico. Uh, I'm not all Chelsea fans are racist, obviously, but you know, there were certainly some, um, and in some ways affiliation to reggae defined the, the black youth in my school, although many of them also liked soul music and, but those racist skinheads and, and, and other, uh, white working class youth were drawn to soul music. And that was somewhat a legacy of mod. Um, And so there was this kind of tension between them. And there was also an ongoing um, debate within, for example, reggae about whether soul was uh, some assimilationist music, sellout music, uh, music, you know, there's a famous quote where Peter Tosh is talking about, is it rejecting soul because it's just too much love love music? What about, you know, it lacked the kind of political militancy of reggae? But these two musical forms actually kind of, play around and merge and and work in different ways throughout the 1970s and in particular race plays a big part so the reggae sound system scene although it wasn't entirely racially exclusive um was primarily for black londoners uh where the music of jamaica soundtrack the emergence of new sort of more militant rejections of what reggae calls babylon the system of racism and inequality which west indians were you know experienced when they came to the UK, quite um, much to their surprise, um, many of them who had been, uh, you know, taught to believe that you know Britain was the mother country, London was the capital city of empire, and they were going to be welcomed with their British passports. But that's not what happened. And so reggae t- reggae took on this very strong, militant, uh, black tone um, with the the great dreadlocked sort of bards of reggae, the Bob Marleys and Burning Spear, you know, talking about politics, talking about freedom, human rights. Uh, the Babylon shit stem, etc., the evil philosophy, um, on, and then on the other hand, you've got soul music, which comes out, you know, after Motown. Soul is uh, commercially successful. It circulates through the official channels. You get it on the radio. Um, they play it in the mod clubs in in Soho, and then you get the emergence of a soul scene, which is primarily based around uh, South and East of London, in Kent and in Essex, amongst centred on a white working class community who are people whose parents often had moved out from working class London, from East London into new towns, Basildon and and, um, Harlow and other places like that. And also down to uh, Thanet and and into Kent and around those places, you got a very, very lively soul scene, which was in many ways um, anti-racist. You know, it was a place where a lot of white working class British people who were not racist, who, who embraced black culture and wanted to, um, and also love to dance, and of course, this is the great dance, the great dance music. Um, built a, a strong and vibrant soul scene, which did, under certain conditions, accommodate black ravers, but only up to a point. And there was there was a sense in which, in talking to uh, black DJs in London who were DJing in the seventies, there was a sense in which the so-called soul mafia DJs, who were the leading figures in this white soul scene, were slightly keeping uh, black DJs out and had placed limits on the amount of black people that they'd be happy to come to their party. So famously, um, uh, Chris Hill, who is one of the uh, top Soul Mafia DJs said, you know, I was really happy to have a black audience. And I struggled with my local, you know, with the bouncers in the clubs to try and make sure that they let black people in. I'd be really happy if there were 30% black people in, in the party, which is great, but also places kind of spatial quotas on, on the scene. So. You have these two very important scenes. I mean, that's the kind of the way what I've described is the kind of racial and spatial construction of those scenes. But of course, in the middle of it, you have this incredibly rich music, which is being pumped into London on the one hand from Jamaica by the burgeoning Jamaican uh, music scene of the 70s. Studio One, the sound systems, uh, you know, Bob Marley, Ireland Records. And then on the other, you have soul music, which is also which is pumping amazing music through the import record shops, which are starting to appear in London in the early 70s. Um, this stuff is not being played too much on the radio. A lot It's a specialist music scene, but there's so much great music being produced out of that, the American black music, uh, jazz, funk and soul production system, which is finding its place within London as well. So you have this incredibly sort of rich uh, musical and artistic aesthetic environment Operating within a system of kind of quite strong urban racism, uh, with you know almost paramilitary-style policing of black neighbourhoods, huge problems at carnival throughout the seventies. Famously, a huge riot in nineteen seventy-six; five hundred people were were hurt there. You know, a running battle between carnival goers and the police, and then of course you get the Brixton riots in eighty-one. Um, so that's the kind of background and the spatial context within which this music is helping people who are trying to build a kind of working multicultural in London um, allowing them or encouraging them to find their own space to found this kind of um, more equitable culture really because as a person who spent a lot of time on the dance floor you know a dance floor is a space of kind of I don't know how to put it really without sounding too sort of soppy about it, but it's a place of kind of equality. It's a place where people can both be themselves, create themselves in new ways, and, and interact with other people on a non kind of verbal level, um, <clears throat> which allows them to build very strong uh, connections, which were not really available um, in, in the context of, of racial segregation, really, uh, in many other parts of the city, uh, in other places.
0: I don't know whether this is sort of putting too much onto his shoulders but the kind of key character um, that shines through in in the discussion of Rare Groove and really takes forward that sense of the potential and the possibility for a music scene to found multicultural is Norman Jay who you know uh, people in Britain will you know hopefully be very familiar with him people in the States uh, hopefully too but maybe less so and his story, um, I think, is is precisely that story of um, the kind of the birth of this potentially kind of multicultural um, moment against the backdrop of these uh, spatial um, and maybe kind of, you know, industrial leisure forms of racism. But I was really struck in your uh, discussion of uh, of Jay at a point in, um, I think it's the second chapter, where you talk about, how he knew that Rare Groove had a certain kind of lifespan to it. And is it New Year's Eve, 86 or 87, where, you know, there's a moment where he's like, yeah, that's probably it, you know, and there's probably going to be something else coming. Um, and it'd be interesting to kind of tell the story of Norman Jay as, as the story of, of Rare Groove. Yeah, I mean, I was <clears throat> I was so happy to, you know, focus on
1: Norman because in many ways Norman was one of my most important teachers, you know, Norman Jay is, a, you know, he was born in, in the uh, very early 60s. You know, he's a, he's a slightly older, he's a generation older than me, you might say, or a half a generation older than me. And he had been collecting records since he was eight years old. His dad used to give him a fiver and send him down to Webster's, which was this little store, um, little kind of um, shack, really, or uh, where you could buy music from Jamaica in America. Uh, and he'd go and buy records so that they could listen to them at parties or at Christmas. So he was a DJ from, you know, by the time he was 10. Um, and he was someone who, he was his family from Grenada, I think, actually. So he wasn't a Jamaican, although he knew and grew up within a, a sound system dominated uh, scene in uh, in West London. But he was someone who, albeit that he was obviously well aware of racism and well aware of the way of the sort of failed promise that had been offered to the Windrush generation, which was, you know, come to Britain, come and help reconstruct, do post-war reconstruction. You're welcome. You're a citizen. And then he saw that his, that his parents were actually treated as second-class citizens, that their job qualifications didn't matter, that there was continual, uh, in fact, a rise of kind of racism in the streets and also in, institutionally in Britain in the 70s. So he was well aware of that. But he was determined to claim his space in Britain you know, he's pro-black, as he says, but he's also, he's British. He's a Londoner, and he was fascinated by mods. He says, I wanted to be a mod. You know, two of his mates on the estate were mods who had scooters, and he was fascinated by them. He decided to support Tottenham rather than Queen's Park Rangers, which was more the local team, because he wanted to be different, but he wanted to sort of assert himself. He thought their shirts were cool, and he loved Jimmy Greaves. So he went and claimed space on the on the White Hart Lane, you know, uh, sort of frontline he went to the soul clubs and you know in fact on his 21st birthday he tried to go to a soul club uh, in in Tottenham I think it was and was knocked back at the door and it kind of gave him a determination to build something different and so what he did was he realized that in order to found something new something different to the reggae sound system scene that something that was uh not racially exclusive, but also was not going to be in danger of being shut down by the police, as many many black clubs and sound systems were continually. So he very deliberately went and collaborated with white British promoters. You know, he found this group of public school boys from North London who called themselves Family Function. Uh, Judge Jules or Julius O'Reardon, as he was then, Dan Benedict, um, and some of their mates who had a little thing going on with kind of student crowd. And he collaborated with them in and, and said to them, what your job is, partly, he said this to Jules, and he, um, is to talk to the police. When the police come down to our parties and try and shut them down, you go out and talk to them, use your Oxbridge Jackson, look them in the eye and, you know, give them some old flannel. And, and it worked because actually the police were much less uh, aggressively uh, trying to stamp out what they perceived to be, you know. A, a, a mixed scene, which wasn't going to come with all the trouble that they had assumed would always accompany, you know, black dance uh, events. And he was doing this with records that he'd, he'd had for quite a long time. I mean, he bought all the, rec- the Rare Groove records when they were new. He bought them in 72, 73, 78. But he had them and he played them to a whole new crowd of people in the mid 80s for whom this music was completely new um and found it. And it was kind of a great education for many young people. I mean, you know, any dj that you're going to meet nowadays uh, who's been around for a while is someone who has been schooled in the history of funk and soul and jazz um and house by norman and people like norman who came first and who kind of exposed them to this this kind of music however norman is not a guy who wants to sort of stop where he is and even though he founded this rare groove scene which is extremely you know I mean there's an argument about whether he entirely founded it or there were other DJs who were influential of course Barry Sharp and the Cells and Paul Gumtrip and of course Soul to Soul were right there doing their thing as well but he was the kind of leading figure but he was very aware that after playing the same bunch of records you know for a while they're completely unknown then they become quite familiar then they start being reissued by record companies who have suddenly woken up to the value of their back catalog so he he was very uh, prepared to say, well, we've had a great time, but something new is on the horizon. And he actually had had a whiff of what was coming, which was really what we think of as the explosion of rave, called Acid House initially in in eighty seven. And he could hear and see that happening. And I think he was quite happy about it. I mean, he I quote him in the book say "Well, I say, you know, you might think that he would have every reason to be quite bitter about what Acid House did to the rare groove scene, but not at all. He thought it was great. He said it reminded him of punk." It was a real moment of kind of change, which he embraced. And nowadays, if you go and hear Norman DJ, he's just as likely to play a, a set of house music as he is uh rare groove. You know, he didn't want to stay in the same place. And I think that's to his credit that he, like, like the club scene in general, values the fact that it moves. Genres develop, they change, things get boring, and new energy needs to be unleashed to keep everything vibrant. And, you know, he still... He's still doing it now. Um, you know, he he he's one of, he's a one of the, I don't know about the world's most successful DJ, but he continually. I mean, unfortunately, like all the other DJ I interviewed, he'll be sitting at home, not DJing at the moment. He's doing his radio shows, but he's huge in. He's got a huge international audience all across uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, America. He so he's a real figurehead, and he's a really you know he's a fascinating, intelligent uh, and morally sound person as well
0: i mean it's funny you mention his um you know embrace of of acid house and you know that kind of crossover with with the punk ethos and stuff like this because the impression i get from the middle of the book is you're you're sort of slightly critical actually of, of acid house and the rave scene in terms of the dominant narrative you know that uh this new kind of um Club culture, this new genre, this new set of uh, spatial arrangements um, particularly influenced by um, I guess you know white middle class kids um, and their roots through southern Europe in, in some ways is, is maybe like the wrong history here and you, you know there's, there's a certain kind of overplaying of, of the potential in a way that um, sets up um i I think the discussion of of jungle so it'd be nice to hear a little bit about your maybe your like caution about um our sort of current dominance um history of rave
1: yeah i I mean i think one of the problems is that many people who uh get into dance music and consequently those people who write about it uh tend to believe that the, the time at which they got into it and the thing that they got into was the first thing and there was something about rave acid house that was so new and different. I mean, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of ecstasy here. Obviously, it was a very yeah. potent um, component of that scene. Uh, okay, so you've got ecstasy, you've got this new, strange machine-driven music from which the origins of which are somewhat mysterious and hidden from you, because nobody knows what the people who are making this music look like. Nobody it just doesn't really have lyrics; it doesn't tell you a story, um, and it therefore can be easily. Rearticulated articulated into a new kind of environment so people who are listening to the early acid house won't really have known that it came from the black gay scene in chicago and detroit um well in chicago and new york and then in detroit a slightly different in the techno scene but they wouldn't that those those links to black afro-diasporic musical practice were hidden somewhat by the fact that this music was anonymous that you were consuming it in places where you know you were disoriented by drugs or by lights and smoke and all of these kinds of things and people shouting acid in your ear. So I, it's absolutely true that a group of white British DJs went to Ibiza, discovered what Alfredo was doing um, in, his, in, uh, in his After Hours club there, discovered this sort of potent mix of ecstasy and house music and a new kind of eclecticism which allowed them to come and transform club culture. And that's true that that did happen. But what is obscured by the way in which uh, Paul Oakenfold and Danny Rampling, um, you know, and even, you know, Andrew Weatherall are lionised by the people who write about this kind of music and the the audience is that it obscures the fact that, A, they have been trained in music by being involved in soul, funk, rare groove, hip-hop. They were all, you know, they were schooled in black music through their association with multicultural scenes which preceded acid house i mean nicky holloway who was a big prime mover and with the trip and many other things you know was a, was a, a funk soul dj running running events which um, drew on the sounds of the model of the reggae sound system and i thought that the way that rave and acid house has been historicized just overplays its hand uh, in terms of Selecting this particular group of, and they are white DJs um, as the as the founders, as it were. Or sometimes people also will include, um, you know, the Hacienda in Manchester, uh, which obscures the the fact that this is part of a, of a black music ecosystem, which is also happening parallel. And so I try to focus on what I call the Brixton Acid Mob. So this is Jumping Jack Frost, Dave Angel, uh, Colin Dale, uh, Brian G, who, while they, they very quickly picked up on the Acid House model, which had been brought over from Ibiza by Openfold and, and Danny Rampling at Shum and The Trip and Spectrum, these big Acid House clubs of the, of the late 1980s. But they adapted it and changed it. And there were also many other sound systems like Shut Up and Dance and Top Bars who, who took Acid House and kind of mixed it with other Afro-diasporic musical forms um, and were taking it in other new directions. Uh, So I talk about uh, Fabio and Groove Rider, also from Brixton, who had been soul and funk DJs, were converted to Acid House very rapidly in 87, um, having experienced uh, Shum and uh, and Oakenfold's club at Ziggy's in Stretton, which was a key moment of kind of the introduction of this new spatial practice and this new kind of music. But they took it in new directions very rapidly. They became huge DJs on the sort of of out-of-London M25 rave circuit but they also started changing the music by the way they were playing it for example at rage they had a club uh, in heaven where they played upstairs initially and then subsequently moved downstairs when colin favor and some of the other house djs left um and i think their influence is often underplayed in this story and really the acid house period is quite a short period before the music breaks apart into all kinds of versions of of um hardcore Uh, Some of which are more reggae oriented, some of which are more hard techno oriented, uh, some of which are, you know, extremely druggy subcultures, as Simon Reynolds talks about those things that were happening in East London at the Labyrinth and at um, uh, the Dungeons, some of these kind of key clubs of the hardcore era. So I just wanted to reorient the, the history a little bit because Rave has been much written about and much mythologized. And I think that there is a I wouldn't say it was a racism, but there's a kind of blindness to the racial politics which constructed it, which which always constructed those scenes and which also provides some of the um, background that we need to understand how jungle emerged from rave. It wasn't just the child of rave. It was a reconnection of all the different black musical genres of the previous period rave, but also funk, soul, hip hop, dancehall um, and had a you know, a profound effect on what happened in the in the mid nineties in London, and then subsequently everywhere else.
0: Yeah, I, I maybe I'm projecting a bit onto the book, but um, what comes through in in, in the uh, the final chapter is 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 a, is a real kind of like love and and warmth uh, for jungle, and uh, precisely that actually the sense of this being both you know innovative as as a genre, but also politically important and, you know, kind of spatially interesting as, as well in terms of the reconfiguration of, of, the, um, of the club scene in, in London at the time. And I guess that might be the thing to, to start to wrap up on, really, the, the idea of Jungle being um, as much a kind of, you know, you've alluded to the racial divides and the race scene, but Jungle being something that was, you know, the product of uh, a sort of musically open um, multicultural society
1: yeah I mean I think what I there's just so, so much wrapped up here one thing is that for me just to go back to my story I wasn't in London when jungle happened I had been throughout rare groove I was here during acid house and I loved it um, I, I was in America in the 90s I lived in San Francisco so jungle was something that I saw happening or heard happening through import records and it just blew my mind and i was i just wanted to try and understand it in fact the whole project started with me writing about jungle and trying to understand what had happened and in many ways it seemed to me that just as frankie knuckles the great dj said that um, house music was disco's revenge uh, in the sense that disco had kind of emerged and become this big thing in america at which everyone jumped on the bandwagon and then it was rejected and there was a strong racist component in the in the disco sucks movement and in the way that disco was was, was denigrated uh, and then house music emerged as the kind of revenge of the DJs uh, who brought disco back in a new form. In a similar way, Jungle is sort of reggae's revenge. Uh, if we imagine that what happened was that as rave emerged and then rave became a much more industrial and much whiter form of music and the audience was much whiter and many, many black lovers who had started off going to raves kind of dropped away, Jungle brings reggae right back into the mix, these huge reggae bass lines. It also brings hip-hop back. It kind of reconfigures the racial constitution of the music um, and also changed the audience because it really allowed, as I talked to some of the people in the book, like um, Paul, who ran Ibiza Records, you know, um, it allowed, it gave a space for black ravers to come back into the rave that they've been, or at least felt, excluded from in the early uh, 1990s. Musically, Jungle is such a sort of, conundrum or at least a kind of it, it's, a, it's an amazing text to try and uh, interpret what is going on in a jungle text you know you've got these multiple rhythms going on you've got a bass line running half the speed of the break beats, which is sometimes running at 160 bpms you've got reggae chatting you've got um, poetry you know with LTJ Bookham and, and the kind of intelligent side of drum and bass you've got this kind of strange textures and one of the things i really valued about jungle was jungle Constructs a new version of kind of British identity and it bases it around the multicultural city, but it's not trying to resolve all the tensions, which Rave said it was trying to do through this kind of aspirant idea that if everyone gets on the right drugs, everyone would, will be happy and there'll be no more race, class, and gender problems. Well, that was a false promise and that very quickly fell apart in the early 90s. Jungle doesn't try and do that. Jungle is about pre millennial tension, you know, urban pressure. It's about problems. It's got a kind of nightmarish quality, which is open and frank about the state of the British, of the Western city at the end of the, of the 20th century. It's not all happy-clappy, but within that is something that you can also, uh, you can feel in, in your bones, you can dance to, you can, you know, so it's a real act of kind of sort of militant cultural intervention, which is both uh, scary and incredibly exciting. So it kind of captures something inherent about you know, city space, which is always a bit edgy and can be difficult and is full of inequality and all kinds of you know really worrying things. But on the other hand, you can grab a hold of it and you can create a kind of art which is honest and might give you the grounds for building new forms of economy, which is certainly what Jungle has done. I mean, it built a, a very a strong international global economy, which is obviously under huge threat right this minute because of the lockdown. And we hope that, I hope that it's going to find a way to, um, all the musical genres that I love will find a way to kind of sit it out and then come back stronger than ever. So that's why I think Jungle was so, so important. And I, um, you know, but again, it's just another twist in the long tail of the evolution of Afro-Diasporic musical form. Where rhythmic intelligence, what I call rhythmic intelligence, which is the kind of underlying um, intellectual uh, aesthetic structure of black music, which is too often, uh, I think, overlooked as what it really is, which is something uh, which is uh, the product of thought, the product of intellect, as much as it is the product of, uh, you know, uh, or people wanting to have a bit of fun on a Saturday night, as it were. It's more significant than than
0: that. To finish off then. I mean, there's so much we haven't covered in the book. Um, we we barely actually talked about London weirdly, um, and there's really great stuff in the book about gender as well as well as uh, race and, and and issues of of class as well as well as you know really detailed engagement with with the music itself. And I suppose the point you just made there about um, that kind of optimism for the music is a good moment to conclude on and i'm I'm just interested to know on a personal kind of intellectual level what what comes next are you going to be doing more work on um this kind of um social spatial analysis of music or are you thinking in terms of that being a completed project and, and doing something different
1: well since this is me writing about the thing which i think the most about and care the most about i think there'll be more in in this line coming up but actually i'm i'm going back a pace uh, in my in my next piece of work i've been working on a project called bass culture which was a ahrc funded project run by michael riley at the university of westminster where which was about the impact of reggae specifically reggae and jamaican music in the uk over the past five decades so we did a lot of interviews there with s- senior uh, you know reggae uh, producers people who run sound systems Coxon, linton crazy johnson dennis bevel so i've got we've got a volume of oral history uh, out of that project that we need to put together and i will be writing in particular so that that's one project is is a collection of the interviews thematically organized we've got about 40 odd interviews um uh, which we want to make available uh which is a wonderful moment for me to talk to these people who you know some of, which, some of whom I knew of and some of whom I didn't, but have got amazing stories. I mean, people who have been kept out of the kind of formal institutional intellectual world of our culture, of, of our country, but actually, I mean, call me, calling them organic intellectuals might even feel you know, patronising because but we're talking about people who have been deeply engaged in the production of culture, in cultural economies, uh, who have, a, have a, a very acute understanding of post Uh, Racism, uh, whose voices need to be heard. So I'm very keen to get that out. And then I'll be writing a book also a part of that project, which is about the relationship between reggae and punk uh, at the end of sort of between 76 and 82, which is another output from that. And then after that, well, back probably, you know, there's so much amazing music being made right this minute. I'm very fascinated by drill. I'm fascinated by the new London jazz. I see them as kind of parallel. It's almost like good cop, bad cop, you know. Drill gets, is, is criticised as being, you know, the voice of the kind of the gangs and the drug dealers. And, you know, it's actually incredibly uh, musically fascinating and it's evolving very rapidly on the one. And then on the other hand, you've got this incredible jazz scene going on live music, again, under serious threat from lockdown, but an incredible new batch of very, very good jazz musicians. And one of the particular things which makes London jazz so fascinating is it's jazz being played by people who also know Rave, uh, dubstep Uh, hip-hop, Afrobeat, you know, there's a new African connection which reflects the changing uh, demographics of the black community in London, which is now majority West African as opposed to West Indian. Um, So all of those things fascinate me still, and, you know, it's hard to keep up, Uh, but that's the kind of thing I'll be writing about in the future, I'm sure.